Hello and welcome to The Run-In. I hope everybody is staying safe, enjoying what um, orienteering they can virtually in the whole lockdown situation. We've got a really great episode coming up for you with a fantastic interview from Rachel Rothman, who's going to be giving us all the kind of inside stories from when she used to compete as an elite domestically and internationally. It's a really, really great one. So looking forward to that. But since the last episode... Um, there's been more detail come out about um, the major events happening in the next year. So the IOF Council met and they have taken into account the uh, feedback from all the different federations across the world and with the Athletes Commission. So they've decided that the Sprint World Championship, so in Denmark, should be held in October 2020. They're currently looking at five to seven days within the period of October the 9th to the 18th. The idea they've said with this is that international travel should allow close to 100% participation as possible. Athletes should have a minimum of three months to prepare and with that the decision uh, can be made as late as the 1st of of July. If it doesn't end up happening in October 2020, they've said it won't get postponed till 2021. Then Denmark can be offered that sprint walk in 2022, which means Edinburgh would postpone to 2024, or Edinburgh would keep 2022 and Denmark would be offered to 2024 if Edinburgh said they couldn't move theirs at all. So, Will, there's so much to dive into here. Does that that seem like a reasonably good plan for October? Um, I mean... I, yeah, I don't see any any personal problems with it being in October if it's in 2020. I think that's a logical thing, and and a decision being made in July gives everyone enough enough time to prepare. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean personally, I wouldn't mind it if they if they push that decision later on to maybe um, maybe end of August and and give a little bit more wiggle room to to allowing it to to go ahead in October with um, you know a slightly shorter time scale because. In my view, everybody competing at WOC should be at a, a level where they can, or they should be, preparing themselves well enough and be able to have a good enough base level fitness where they can prepare from two to three months out and uh, um, maybe not the kind of um, the four months. So, I mean, in my view, it's a sprint walk. It could be in November, it could be in December, if, you know, and and it could be next year as well. They've said at the moment that the... Um, World Championships won't be held in 2021, those those Sprint World Championships. So there's already going to be a Forest World Championships in the Czech Republic in 2021. And it seems like the federations were, were mixed about whether that should happen, but the Athletes Commission was against having those two World Championships in the same year. For, from the people I've talked to, the Brits, admittedly, that I've talked to, everybody was fairly... Uh, disbelieving of the fact that, that that it wouldn't be held in 2021 they were all quite positive i mean it was only you know a couple of years ago that we had the world championships with all the disciplines in you know all five mm. disciplines in one world championships that seems a bit odd that we can't then go and hold those two world championships in 2021 what do you think will yeah so um, that decision to me seems and, and this is my you know my personal opinion so people can disagree with it or or agree with it agree with it you know this is um just my view i find it incredibly uh disappointing and um surprising that there's a decision where there can't be two world championships held in one year so as you say in, in 2018 we held a 
a mixed sprint and forest world championships what ended up being the final one you know and we mm-hmm. and we had people preparing for both sprint and forest in that same world championship and performing in them both and winning medals in both um you also had at that time european championships going on in the same year where people were having to to peak twice in one year and mm-hmm. um that happens every other year at, at, at the moment and personally for me i I feel that the world championships are the pinnacle of the sport and to not have a a sprint world championship in a four-year period so if they're going to push it back to 2022 is just a bit of a joke really and I and I don't see the logic behind it especially if you're going to include world cup races in that calendar year now yes the calendar is going to be very compact next year and, and we want to avoid over racing as much as possible because the last thing you want is to dilute the level of competition mm-hmm. um and you don't want to you know make people injure themselves by feeling they're forced to turn up and race but logically thinking october could be very difficult for everyone to get to in the same shape with restrictions lifting in different countries at different times so mm-hmm. already you've got unfairness there and you know life and sport is unfair but maybe if october this year is is too unfair for for a championships to be held why i don't see why we can't hold it next year remove a world cup round and what's come out of this is the athletes commission stating that uh what should take preference and they uh yeah they don't um and, and a certain number of federations as well i think it was 16 federations were for it for two walks next year in the iof mm-hmm. statement and and 12 were against it as well as the yeah. athletes commission and and the athletes commission have said you know it's harder for um, less well-funded countries to manage two walks. They might have to prioritise one over the other. Completely get that. Um, you know, World Cup takes preference over certain regional championships. That I don't really understand. To, for, for me, a European championships would always take preference over a, a World Cup round because it's bigger. You know, you, there's, there's a, a international title at stake there, whereas World Cup really... It's quite diluted. You get people using it for different things. Other countries using it for selections. Some aren't. Some are using it for testing of of younger athletes. It doesn't have that same prestige. Whereas a European mm-hmm. Championships or a WOC, they're the big deal. It, for, for me, incredibly disappointing. If we don't see a world champ sprint for a four-year period, I think we've lost. And we will lose athletes from the sport because I go off and do other things. And actually, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the like smaller federations and um, not being able to prepare for two world championships. But I mean, kind of the point of having the sprint world championships is that it can be held anywhere. And a lot of certainly British athletes can perform well in the sprint because they don't have to go to endless training camps in forest terrain where a world championship is going to be held. And that is probably the same for for a lot of others. So, mm. and a lot of those smaller nations are more successful at a sprint world championships. But then, you know, I, I can totally see it on the other side for the people who are in big orienteering countries who are all-rounders and are good all-rounders. They want to be able to win as many medals as they can and if they feel that that's not going to allow them to do that then they have a right to say in their opinion it shouldn't be held in 2021 yeah yeah and and this is the thing every country is going to have a different view on it right so and a a british perspective will be that our home world championships is now being pushed possibly going to be pushed two years further out as well so that's Mm. almost you feel like that's two years added onto a, a life cycle and it's going to be you know if you set certain goals for yourself and, and like you were saying you know setting goals for training and prepping for october mm. you you feel that sudden disappointment of 
of a goalpost moving that you have absolutely no control over and going, actually, you've got to wait two more years for this. And you don't know what's going to happen in those two years. You don't know if you're going to get a really bad injury. You don't know if you're suddenly not going to be able to make the team or or, or what happens. Mm-hmm. Or, or your life situation might just change. You know, you, you, you grow older, you want to... I don't know, some people might want to start a family or get married or move countries or, or their job, you know, put them somewhere else and they won't be able to train for um, as, as much as they... Um, they are doing at the moment so mm-hmm. all of that kind of shifts your perspective as I think as a Brit at the moment you're going right well actually I've got two more years possibly here that's a whole yeah. you think about it in Olympic terms that's a whole Olympic cycle you've got to go again and it is hard and, and you do suddenly think about you, you question if you're going to go for it I mean I'm, I'm still going to go for it but I'm, I'm you know committed I'm in I'm not going to not train for a home world champs I want to be there I want to try and get a medal but it, I, I think other people will be out there you know, thinking what they're going to go and do. And I know members of the British team are incredibly disappointed by by this possible decision. They don't understand the logic of it. I'm quite confident in saying that the vast majority of us don't agree with this decision, don't like this decision. But mm. And this wasn't the decision that I believe the British Federation put across as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think the whole kind of organisation is is quite disappointed in, in what's come out of this. But, you know, we're, we're one cog in the machine. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to negatively affect British athletes more than it may well do other nations because the Brits are demonstrably better, or at least in recent years, better in sprint racing than we are mm. in the forest. But anyway, we could we could keep talking about the World Championships yeah. for ages. Um, but I mean, but that's, it, that's sport, right? I mean, mm. uh, the countries have advantages over others. So we're, well, I think we're perfectly entitled to that view of, of being yeah, disappointed. I, and But... I mean, I don't know what we can do in terms of if 16 federations vote for um, vote for it to be next year and 12 mm-hmm. federations vote for it not to be next year, as well as the Athletes Commission, you've got to ask why. I mean, maybe you ask why those 12 federations have more weight than the 16 others. You know, what was the split there? I think it's more about the athletes. I think it's more about the Athletes Commission, to be honest. Yeah. Because they want to, they want to do what's best for the athletes, um, which and, is... Is good, but whether the then you then you go on to whether the commission properly reflects the the wishes of the athletes or just some athletes, which yeah. is a whole you know can of worms I don't want to open. No, and the, and they obviously uh, yeah, and they they obviously volunteer for the commission. They do a great job um, and. But yeah, that's the World Championships. We move on to Jaywalk. They've still said they should be held the latest, um, the 31st of October 2020. This is in Turkey, by the way. Otherwise, should be cancelled. And then Junior World Championships 2021, there's some discussion about them possibly accommodating a special class for those who would have been last year jaywalk this year so wouldn't get a chance to run as a last year jaywalk athlete and allowing them basically to run in a special class in 2021 what do you think of that i mean yeah that that seems like a good compromise to me in terms of those final year athletes will get to run i i don't think you could allow them to to mix in with the normal team as it stands because Obviously, if if you've got a first year senior and having had that extra year of development and you know extra year of growth and and training compared to a, a first year eighteen, that is quite a difference. So I think it is probably the the best option having that extra class. But yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, Joe. I, I I think that probably no matter what they did on that, there'd be some people disappointed with the with the situation yeah. because of the age ranges involved and. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I think they're going to do the same for world universities. Maybe you're going to keep your year of eligibility okay. to next year if you if it expires this year. So I spoke to Aston Key at the weekend, and he said that yeah, it's completely out of my control. I can't do anything about it. So uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and you know, a lot of those maybe those last year junior, you know, JWOC Junior Worlds competitors this year you know they'll be first year seniors next year they may be going for world championships maybe going for world cup stuff so i mean i think it's probably each individual take that make their own decision about whether they would go for that special class next summer Mm. um quickly look at eyoc european youths they've already been postponed they said if they still can't be held they should be cancelled european championships in estonia this summer already been cancelled there's a suggestion to move those european champion that those kind of sets of races to 2022 where the next forest um europeans would be and then move the 2022 which is in hungary move that to 2024 um mm. and the, the one of the things is so the world games which is it's almost like I, I always describe it as like the Olympics for all of those sports who want to get into the Olympics yeah. um, was due to be held in Birmingham, Alabama in 2021. That now would overlap with the Olympics so that's been moved to 2022 and that now uh, clashes with the World Championships 2022 so I'm sure the organisers of the event in Edinburgh of course will be having a difficult decision to make about what they do if they can you know if they can move and then there's also the possibility of Denmark maybe taking that spot in 2022 as well must be an absolute nightmare yeah, and I think from what I've heard, and and this could be obviously wrong, so take it with a pinch of salt, is that they weren't consulted about the possible move for, to 2024. I think um, there's some working groups going on at the moment that are going to uh, talk about a shift, in, a shift in date for WOC, and there's been a request from some members of the team to uh, shift it to pre-World Games to, um, you know, to accommodate that moving um time slot because world games is still important and it's and it's good for funding for the fe- for well, for our federation at least and you know it's a good um kind of showcase to put on uh, for the sport and there's always a lot of um you know coverage of it in places so yeah, yeah. it's um it's a pretty prestigious uh, event to go to so you don't want to skip it and you certainly don't want to clash with world champs um like the clash is just i mean far from ideal and i don't envy the organizers of walk 2022 at the moment you know trying to reorganise all of the council permissions and yeah. and then you just think about the people who have maybe started university there and they've only got they feel like they've only got two years in the, the embargo left and and now they've got four years of possible four years of embargo still to go and that's going to impact quite heavily on their their just general lives at university as well so I mean there's all kind of things affected by this yeah and so we've not of course we've not got a clear picture yet about what's going to happen to the world championships 2022 those discussions are ongoing we will bring those to you as soon as we uh basically as soon as we know what's going on but but a lot of that might not happen until july when we know whether the world championships will be held this year or still possibly next year so anyway we'll part that one for now um i'm sure again it'll be one we're going to keep coming back to as the situation changes um we're going to have uh ralph's orienteering conundrum coming up towards the end of the episode but first of all as a lot of the the british season as well as the international season is kind of all being cancelled it was due to be uh the jk uh last weekend so we thought we'd catch up with former 
JK champion and also international runner for GB. So we had a little sit down with Rachel Rothman. Rachel, welcome to The Running. Hi, thanks for having me. That's all right. Well, thank you for coming on. How's it all going in this um, current tumultuous time, which we'll, we'll try not to spend too much time on? Uh, yeah, it's actually, it's going all right now. I had a, about, we actually locked down before most people in the country because my husband, Alex, is a consultant cardiologist, so he was at high risk. And uh, so we moved out, me and the boys, to my parents' house. And after having a minor breakdown about it all happening, it's now going fine because they live right on the edge of the Peak District. So I've actually done more running in the last three weeks than I probably did in the previous six weeks. So overall, oh, we're, doing, we're doing all right. <laughs> Oh, that well, that's an ideal location for lockdown training. Yeah, yeah, and uh, my parents have a big garden, so the boys are having a blast, and they, my parents obviously help look after them, so I'm getting quite a lot of work done, and it's... Um, no, I think we're lucky. I feel like I'm a bit isolated in a bubble at the moment, and then I'll speak to Alex and find out what the real world's like, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, well, well, I hope he's keeping well and that, you know, he's, uh, it's not too, too much for him yet. No, no, he's OK. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I guess well we can we can start there then, and um, I guess we'll, we'll start uh, in the present now, and then we'll dive back into to random streams of the past. You know, you are um, you're now working full time, and you've like you say you've got a husband who works full time, and you've got two kids as well. Uh, how are you how are you juggling this kind of new phase of your life with uh, young young kids? You know, how much do you get to train at the moment? You know, obviously you can do a lot of training locally with the uh, coronavirus. Yeah. Um... How much do I get to train? Not very much, and certainly not as much as I would ideally like to. Most of my days, particularly during the week, um, I'm lucky if I get to run more than once or twice. I try and run to work and, and back sometimes, um, but I just get too exhausted. So by the time I've got the kids to to work in, uh, to school and to nursery in the morning and then get myself to work, do a whole day, pick them up, deal with them, get them to bed, tidy the house up, and then I'm too knackered to do anything. So during the week, very little <laughs> training. At the weekend, I do a bit better, but... Um, yeah, I need to find a bit of a better balance with it, but it's all a, a learning curve when you've got small kids to, to deal with. <laughs> and I guess they're just at that age where they're not quite old enough to be going out training with you. <laughs> no, well, in the last two weeks, actually, we've had two lockdown birthdays, so they're now three and five. Um, so, no, not quite old enough, although Matty's getting pretty good on the scooter and the bike now, so maybe he'll be out running with me. Well, not running, I'll be running, he'll be on the bike soon. But, no, it's... um. We have to take it in turns to train most of the times unless we've got a, a babysitter to, to help with us. Okay. And you're, you're part of um, SYO and, and Race for South Yorkshire Orienteers. They've got an excellent junior setup, it seems, at the moment. There's a lot of juniors coming through there. Will, uh, when the boys are growing up, will they um, dive into that kind of junior setup? Or are you, are you going to keep them away from orienteering or, or let them dive in? <laughs> I don't think I could if I tried. They absolutely love it already. And I'm oh, sure that's partly because we have so much enthusiasm for it. And, and as a kid, I think you often enjoy and get enthusiastic about what your what your parents do. But yeah, Matty, he wants to not do the white course. He wants to go and do the yellow course. And obviously he doesn't do all the map reading himself and actually trying to stop him just running off in any direction <laughs> is the challenge. But <laughs> last the, 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 in SYO, it's brilliant. We have all these... Um, Saturday schools events and they have kind of 400 plus kids who are running and it's just amazing to see so many people there racing and you quite often have 200 kids who've completed a white course which is just you know completely different to when I was a kid um and and so yeah they they really enjoy going and and doing those those courses and uh 
it's really exciting to see them getting into it and starting to work out how to do the map and and last time my eldest son went with Alex and uh, did the white course and I went with the younger one behind and he did the whole course himself I didn't have to carry him for any of it and he was probably you know two and three quarters at the time so it's uh Oh, yeah, wow. they're loving it. They're loving it. <laughs> and then, like, right, what, what, what kind of top tips are you giving them to, uh, to help them along? Or are you just giving them that free reign of oh, you know, at, at only, the only holding them back when you can? Yeah, it's free reign. I just want them to enjoy it. I just want them to be out there enjoying it. And you say to Matty, you know, what sports does he like best? And at the minute, it's football, running and orienteering. They're the three things he wants to do. And if he just keeps enjoying <laughs> the outdoors like that, that's perfect. I'm happy. <laughs> and oh, occasionally, occasionally he wants to do climbing as well in there. Yeah, we have a lot of opportunities in Sheffield, so it's great for them. But no, um, the only tip that I'm giving Matty at the minute is, should we stop and look at the map and work out where we're going? (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a key one. Yeah, that that could be useful. (laughs) So I guess, so your kids are obviously getting involved for yourself and um, for Alex. How did you first get involved in orienteering? What's your background to coming into the sport? Oh, so I don't remember my very first orienteering course, but my dad went with his brother a couple of times as a kind of young adult and so at some point when I was probably around six or seven we used to go as a family but between when I was nine and twelve and a half we lived in the Netherlands and my first actual memory of orienteering is when we were in the Netherlands Um, and I remember learning how to do yellow courses and then orange courses on my own over there and I remember my dad shadowing me around courses and I also remember them being quite tricky, but whether that's just because I was obviously young at the time and didn't know what I was doing or whether they actually were trickier courses, I don't know. But there was a lot of sand dune areas over there and so a lot of kind of small contour features on sand dune type um, things and army sand areas as well we ran on a lot of. I remember running the National Dutch Championships as a 10-year-old, which I won, but there were only three people around the course and one of them took twice as long as me and the other one retired. <laughs> This, this was the elite course this was yeah well this was the you know the height of um dutch competitiveness and orienteering because it's you know it's not a big country for orienteering um and but to me i like it was kind of funny to win and and to have only three people entered in the first place but at the same time when you're that age it's just really nice to win something so it was still really fun and i really enjoyed it um and i also remember running some kind of Belgium three-day competitions against some of the Belgium girls who I then did race when I was at Jaywalk kind of eight, nine, ten years later and it was the same girls that I'd been racing age 10 that I was then racing age 20 so that was really nice to kind of know them a bit. Um, Oh wow. Yeah and I still see them around sometimes actually at you know kind of summer events because they've all got families now as well so yeah. Oh fantastic And, and how long were you guys living out there for then? three and a half years we were out there so I came back to the UK into the second year of secondary school and I remember going to a we lived in the northeast of England I remember going to a little local park event and saying oh I'll run the orange and my dad was looking at me saying are you sure I think you can do more than that but I'd never run more than an orange before in the Netherlands but then sure enough it took like eight minutes or something and so uh, (laughs) then I accepted that maybe something more difficult would be good and that year I went to my first British school so a few months after returning and and I won it and that was the first time when there was more than like three people on my course and it was a bit like oh there are actually more people in the world who are in here and and actually maybe I'm okay at this so let's keep doing it <laughs> so yeah and then as you kind of your career went from there you know um junior titles in the UK you went to university and I guess the you know you mentioned jaywalks and stuff like that but the big breakthrough must have been 
well, I'm, I'm kind of saying it's a big break for you, but you obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but the 2002, um, you were part of the gold medal winning team at the uh, World University Championships Relay. You know, how, how did that kind of come about? And I guess what's interesting for me is how people from different universities come together. You know, you're such big rivalries at Bucks, like Edinburgh versus Sheffield, and then you're coming together into one team and working together to a single goal. Mm. Yeah, and it is a rivalry when you're at Bucks, but the girls who I was always in a team with were really good friends of mine. And so whilst it was a rivalry for the course, it never felt like a rivalry all the rest of the time. We were just always good friends. Um, so in, that never actually felt strange, moving to being kind of competitors to being in a team together. My first world students was two years prior to the Bulgaria one in France. And I don't really remember very much about it other than cheering other people on the podium and then the banquet. Um, but as you said, Bulgaria... <laughs> oh, you Bulgaria remember the was... banquet? That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Bulgaria was when we, we won the gold medal and it was with um, Hannah Wootton, Sarah Rollins and Helen Bridal, who have all been good friends of mine for a very, very long time. And I ran first leg, which was not something I was used to doing at all. I'd hardly run any first legs before that. And I just remember thinking, like, you just have to not mess it up. You just have to not mess it up. <laughs> um, and it was really, really hot. And then... The, the three girls behind me, I think, I can't remember, Helen and Sarah ran the middle two, I forget which order, but both ran well and Hannah went out in the lead and we could see kind of the last third of the course because um, it was quite open and we could see the Swedish girl catching her up and we were just like, come on, Hannah. Uh, yeah, that was really, really exciting. Um, and it, it kind of was a breakthrough, but I think when you do it as a team, it feels different to an individual breakthrough because it kind of showed that as a team we could do it, but I didn't feel like my personal performance had been anything exceptional my performance had just been I'd gone out and I'd had a good run and I hadn't messed it up um and I don't remember the individual races from from that world students at all actually I do remember Bulgaria three years earlier for jaywalk because a lot of my um the three jaywalks I ran were all in the same countries as the three first three world students that I ran. I think that was just complete <laughs> fluke, but I was just thinking like, come on, like, give me a different country to go to. <laughs> um, but my first jaywalk was in France and um, I had no expectations on myself. And I think I was like 21st or something in the long, but remember thinking, oh yeah, this, like I could actually, with a bit more training, this could go quite well. And then Bulgaria the year after I was either 13th or 14th in the middle distance. Yeah. 13th according to the uh, stats I've got in front oh, of me oh there you go <laughs> <laughs> but that that jaywalk was just ridiculously hot and I remember people finishing the long and being put on drips because they were so dehydrated on the beach the last like 300 oh, metres wow. was up the beach and it was just crazy like one oh, of the Finnish guys gosh. was carried out the forest and you know like I think as juniors we just weren't prepared for that kind of heat particularly and I'm, I've always been terrible in the heat so I was actually a bit nervous before the Bulgaria world students knowing what the jaywalk had been like three years before um and we got we got in real trouble afterwards because it was really hot and we'd all after the race put bikini tops on and we went on the podium in bikini tops not in our tracksuit tops and we got in big trouble for not wearing our sponsors and it hadn't even occurred to us at the time because none of us had ever won anything on the world stage before so the fact that we should have had like sponsored kit on it never occurred to us but yeah sure enough two weeks later we were all in trouble for not wearing the right things (laughs) nothing's changed there then (laughs) um and uh, the world students was always one of my favorite events because partly because you're there with your really good friends but also it seemed to it it felt like a bit less pressure in some ways and then Czech two years after Bulgaria we got the silver medal in the relay and then Slovakia two years after that we won the gold medal again and that was probably one of my favorite 
orienteering events that we ever did because we were just a really nice bunch of people everybody got on really well we we'd won the relay which was obviously brilliant and then we'd spent all week teaching the boys the dance moves for ymca and the girls <laughs> the dance moves for spice girls wannabe and at the banquet we did the boys did ymca all dressed up in as the village people and the girls dressed up oh, as the spice girls and did wannabe fantastic on the stage at the banquet and so i think the fact that we'd had that going on all week meant none of us had really got stressed out about the competitions because we were more stressed out about trying to learn these dance moves that we were trying to do for the banquet <laughs> and it was really fun and um I remember actually in after walk in 2006 when Helen Bridal was six she did a talk about um the sprint race and what had worked that year and you know why how she'd been able to achieve it and she she said that one of the key things was that it had been really fun and I think that was a, something that you can see through a lot of my orienteering career was that my best performances came when I was having fun because you could kind of relax and you could let the processes that you practice so much take over and you enjoyed it and all of my good performances came from the <clears throat> the competitions and the races that were the most fun and and that Slovakia one was a really good example of that because the whole week was just brilliant fun except for the mm. individual middle where I made one mistake near the end and I was so frustrated I, I must have ended up around about 10th but I could have been on the podium so easily and I was like oh, ah. <laughs> yeah and like you say I guess that that feeling of comrade, uh, camaraderie and friendship must have been really quite hard at, at that time because to have three medal results where you're winning two of those relays across the span of four years is pretty impressive, you know, with, with a gap in between each one as well. Yeah, and on paper, we were not the team that was going to win any of them, I don't think. I don't think anyone would have picked us to be the the winner. You know, we, they were really strong... Um, Czech teams at that time and various other countries as well and I think yeah the camaraderie and the fact that we were racing with our friends because quite a few of those none of the teams were the same but there was a lot of common threads and common people between them um and yeah it was not, nice to run in teams when there were four still mm. I think it's changed since of course yeah um so yeah, all no, it's of those, only three now yeah all of those um the year, the two years we got the gold and the one where we got the silver, there were four in the team, which was really nice. Um, and in the in the Slovakia where we got the the second gold, uh, Ashlyn, who was the girl who was there, because we took five, and so there was one person who wasn't in the team, but she was brilliant as well at being support for the team, and it just felt like we were a whole team of five, even though only four of us were running. Mm. Um, yeah, that camaraderie definitely was a big thing for having good performances and. We were lucky in a way that those world students, we we were all people who we all got on really well. Yeah. So would you say that's kind of some of your proudest moments then from your from your career in those those years in those championships? They're definitely some of the most memorable and some of the most fun moments. Um, I think probably my more, my prouder moments probably come from individual results rather than the relays because I think with all of those relays, nothing felt exceptional and maybe maybe that's the uh, you know the secret to have a really good yeah, result maybe but, that's the um, point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly everyone's um, average across the board you do well as a team i'm not sure if i'd have a moment that i'd particularly say was my proudest i definitely have the ones that i enjoyed the most and and felt like i got the most out of um such yeah. as mm. yeah that world um that world students in the Slovakia was one of them. I really enjoyed the French world championships in 2011. 
Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I, I absolutely love that terrain. My my orienteering style definitely suits technical terrain um, more than anything else. I enjoyed my first World Championships in Denmark. I have a lot of good memories of that. I think when you go to your first one, you have less expectations and it's a bit more, well, let's kind of see what it's like. And I really enjoyed the first one. I'd also... Um, a couple of years before that been on a training camp in Ukraine and then I ran the Ukraine World Champs in 2007 and that was completely different because you had to be so careful about what you ate and what you drank and like the amount of iodine we must have used on that camp and that that World Champs washing (laughs) all of our fruit and our veg and water and everything I mean it was just crazy because you know you couldn't drink any of the tap water or anything Um, and that was a really fun world championships because I went into it feeling prepared having been on a training camp but it was also a crazy world championships because we were in a hotel that was like a tower block and you'd look out the tower block in the morning and there was a roundabout at the bottom and every day the traffic would be going a different way around the roundabout because someone had broken down and in, and instead of like queuing and waiting to overtake they'd just all start driving the other way around the roundabout and like th- their road rules were just insane you know we were by the river as well and people would decide that the the traffic jam on the road was too much and they'd go and like ride on the embankment down by the river instead which wasn't even a road but it looked like a motorway sometimes <laughs> in the morning and like just the kind of sheer randomness of the whole thing <laughs> of the city and being there and um yeah and then one of the training camps two of the girls got bit by a dog and had to go and get tetanus shots and it was just like oh, man. yeah the whole the whole place and the whole thing was just, it was just a completely different world there so that one was really fun and then I have a bit of a mind blank in world championships for a couple of years because they were all a bit kind of meh. Like there was Czech and then there was Hungary and they were okay, but there was just nothing special or particularly notable in, mm. in many ways. And then I was so hyped up for world championships in Norway in 2010 and we'd done loads of training out in Trondheim. And I mean, the terrain is amazing. You, you know, you're just completely... You, you don't see anybody when you go training there you just forest and marshes um, and you really learn to use the marshes and it was so fun and we'd gone out on like quite a few training camps and uh, me and a few friends had been and um, it was brilliant and then the actual race itself the middle at that world champs was just the biggest disappointment I think probably the biggest disappointment of all of the orienteering I did um, at world championships and things because they'd completely planned it for like the TV controls and we mm. didn't we didn't get in any of the nice terrain and i just finished just feeling like it was such a letdown to have had all this amazing terrain around you and then just not gone in any of it and it was just like so disappointing and then the year after was france um and we'd been on some training camps and i absolutely loved the terrain and we'd run the world cup there at, um october the end of the year before and i'd run really well in the long distance bar one mistake at the start um i think i came like 21st in it which was for a world cup race pretty good mm-hmm. um and i'd really enjoyed like just the area in general and we got married the year after actually just before walk we got married in the july and we went out to france for a week and went camping and just went running on some of these areas and and did some orienteering and training and stuff and it was brilliant fun out there and then yeah the world champs itself the um the middle distance I lost two minutes on the first control I was like so excited I just didn't quite rein it in and then I ran really well for the whole of the rest of it and I finished like 19th I think um but if you'd yeah. taken that two minutes off I would have been 
easily in the top 10 and I was just I'd kind of thought in my head that was going to be my last world championships and I'd loved so much all the training and being out there and I still remember some of the maps and some of the legs that I ran in training and in competitions because it was just so much fun trying to decipher what the ground was going to look like and what the best route was going to be and I love a puzzle and to me that terrain was just the biggest puzzle you you know the best puzzle you could possibly present me with I loved it um but then having kind of come so close and yet so far then I did another world champs after that as well (laughs) (laughs) so what what made that urge to carry on there then was that 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 disappointment of that two minute mistake just kind of going one uh, more it wasn't go, disappointment it was frustration because I knew right. that that was the walk where I had probably the best chance I was in really good shape I'd done so much training out there the terrain really suited me I absolutely loved it kind of everything was coming together and then I did the I, I and a few times actually in big competitions I'd mess up at the start because you just get that thing about oh I need to push that little bit harder this is world champs I need to push a bit harder and I just yeah. hadn't quite planned enough what I was going to do on that first leg and it was just complete frustration in myself of doing what I knew I needed to not do and then after that ran the whole thing perfectly because I guess in some ways I'd taken the pressure off myself um mm. but also I just I settled into it you know I settled back into reading the map, making a plan, plan, direction, picture. That was always my mantra. Make a plan, watch your direction, picture the terrain. And that worked so well in that terrain. Um, but the frustration in myself um, is what made me do another one. Um, and the terrain for the Swiss the year after for the middle was not, it wasn't as cool, but it was still interesting terrain. Um, but I mm. didn't quite, I didn't love it as much as I did the French terrain. You mentioned with... um with Ukraine going out on the training camp there and and I don't know if you managed to get to training camps for for all of the world champs you went to but I guess as as you were were moving on with your your kind of your working career and and um for that last world champs in Switzerland I guess going out on training camps was starting to become a bit harder maybe I don't know but uh and maybe for some of the more remote places yeah I I still went on a lot of training camps um because this was actually one of the things that was hard when I stopped was I used to plan my entire year based around the world champs and the world cups and the training camps. And every autumn I would sit down with the calendar and I'd plan out kind of what my weeks were going to look like, where I was going when. And I graduated my undergraduate degree in 2002. And then I lived in Sweden for a year um, and I was teaching orienteering in an orienteering school. <clears throat> and that was quite interesting because I I absolutely loved it. And I loved being out in Sweden and learning Swedish and everything was brilliant. But I kind of got bored um, in my head. I couldn't just do orienteering. That wasn't enough. Mm. And so then I did a PhD when I came back. So between 2003 and 2007, I was doing a PhD. And those years, I had a lot of flexibility. And I could have worked way harder than I did, but I didn't need to. (laughs) And, you know, and part of the point of doing the PhD was that I wanted to get back and do some chemical engineering, but I wanted to also have the time and the flexibility for the training. And Mm. so... Yeah, I could do all the training camps I wanted, basically, up until 2007 when I was still a student. And then I was a postdoc for a couple of years and then I became a lecturer. And still, I wasn't really, um, it was a job, but I wasn't really dedicating myself to it. And it's probably no surprise that a year after I retired from international competition is when I got promoted at work because I actually had put a bit more time and effort into doing some work (laughs) rather than just going on training camps. So um, I think one of the things with, with academia is that you have a lot of flexibility so long as Mm. you do the work it's not like you have to be in necessarily between nine and five you know when I'm teaching 
I used to have to be there but the rest of the time I had a lot of flexibility and so I could do the training when I wanted and I'd get up early and I'd go and do my strength and conditioning in the in the Hallam High Performance Suite and I'd still be in my office by kind of quarter to nine in the morning so um yeah there's a there was a lot of flexibility and I did all the training camps I wanted to really I don't feel like I ever really was restricted in my kind of holiday <laughs> I never really felt like a holiday I have to say it just felt like my other life and at the time I always used to say oh I was a a, a chemical engineering orienteer because the orienteering was the priority and then after I after kind of 2012 when I retired then I became an orienteering chemical engineer instead it was <laughs> the other way around because <laughs> I, I guess and, and that almost stumps exactly what I was going to ask um right there and then but I'm going to ask it anyway because I guess what I was wondering was when you started, you know, working full time, finishing your PhD and, and all of that, how were you tailoring your training in Sheffield to to be able to be at the highest level you could in that ter- different terrain around the world? So say if you were going and doing the world champs in um, Bulgaria or European champs in Bulgaria in 2010 or, or you know, world champs in, in France in 2011, you're working full time and you're, you're able to go on these training camps. But how's, how were you structuring the training in the UK to be kind of specified towards that yeah so I did a lot of just looking at maps and kind of planning what would this route look like particularly in the French terrain there was a lot to do with just trying to work out what on earth was going on on the maps um but for me my my technical orienteering was always my strength my kind of ability to interpret the map and pick a reasonable route that was absolutely the strength and the thing that I really needed to work on was the physical side of the training Um, and in many ways it doesn't matter where you are in the world if that's what you're trying to improve so through the winters in Sheffield I trained with Hallam Shaharis on the track a lot and I trained with Dark Peak and I'd do a lot of running in the Peak District and things and I'd make sure I did a lot of terrain running as well and I would do two strength and conditioning sessions as in like heavyweight strength and conditioning and then I'd do a a drill session every week and so a lot of that was just gearing up my um <clears throat> physical training rather than anything else and I used mainly the training camps for the kind of perfecting the technical side and then the other thing I really had to work on was the psychological side which I think is a lot harder because if I went out training in a lot of those areas I could nail everything it was absolutely fine but then I'd come to competition and it would feel like oh, I have to try that little bit harder and that was that would be when it would go wrong and where I'd make those mistakes and it, I think it's quite difficult to find that edge where you're right on the edge just before you fall over the top mm-hmm. um, and it, when I did kind of physical testing on the treadmill VO2 max and lactate testing and stuff I was never as high as a lot of the other people but I always had a really high running economy so what it meant was that when I was racing, I was always really close to my maximum. So that edge mm. was was really quite steep. Like if I fell off the top of that edge, that was the <laughs> end of it. Um, and so, yeah, my my economy was good. And what I needed to do was kind of move the ceiling and keep the economy. And so I spent a lot of the time over those years training the physical side and trying to improve that. And I never really enjoyed cross-country racing that much. I'm not sure if anybody does that much, but I made sure I ran a lot of cross-country races just to get practice at pushing myself to that absolute max. Um, mm, and yeah. that's maybe some of the reason I don't rem- like have as many strong memories of those middle years, the kind of uh, 2008, 2009, 2010 World Championships. Um, yeah, I guess I was, I'd started working. I had a other focus um, and I yeah, the areas just weren't as intriguing to me 
Mm. Okay. And, and it's interesting what you say about the, um, the running economy, because I think there's a lot of stuff being said about that in the running world and running fraternity in general at the moment with all of the, you know, the Nike shoes and uh, the sub two hour <laughs> project and, you know, economy versus pace and all of that kind of thing. Mm. But I remember when, when I was at Sheffield, we used to do that weekly drill session, like you said, and it was, you were trying to very much drill into us that this was one of the most important sessions of the week. Because yeah. you, if you could save energy, you know, if you're doing an hour and a half long race and you save X amount of energy per step in, in the terrain, then you'll be able to perform, you know, minutes better by the end. And we, yeah. and we used to tailor that, I remember, very specifically to the competitions we had, we had coming up. So you used to kind of get me doing like stair hops and runs and uh, hill sessions with, with stairs on them and stuff like that leading into uh, world unis and things. Yeah. So a few years prior to that, I'd Kelly Candy taught us drills in um, in Sheffield, and we used to go down to the EIS to do it, and it made a massive difference to me, and I could really see the improvement in my um, kind of speed and my strength during running, um, and that was one of the reasons I really enjoyed coaching drills to Shewok and other Sheffield um, people who were around at the time, because I think when you see something make a big difference to you, you want to be able to help other people have that gain as well. Mm. Um, and yeah standard running drills are obviously really important and can make a big difference but there's so much you can do when you think about what what race is coming up and what skills am I going to need and I think when you when you train you're always thinking about what are my weaknesses and how do I improve my weaknesses but then when you race you have to switch that mindset and it has to be what are my strengths and if you can have turned some of those weaknesses into strengths by doing your training then that's an absolute bonus when it comes to the racing and that's why we tried to to tailor things based on you know what races were going to be happening, so that they didn't they they felt like a strength, not a weakness, when you came to the race. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And it's amazing that, like you said, that psychological power that that can have of you feeling like you turn up and go right. Well, I've actually prepared for this in every single nth to every single nth degree. That yeah, I'm ready for this because I've done all of these small little extra things as well. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what I felt about like that Ukraine and the French World Championships. I just felt like I'd done a lot more things. I was really prepared for them. And certainly towards the kind of last few years of my career was when I really started to understand how important the psychology was. Before that, I'd not... Um, it, we hadn't had that much kind of input from that side of things. Um, and I, it was actually Alex who helped me a lot with that because he used to say to me, look, you can't control what anyone else does. You can only control your your own race and your what you do mm. and so that's what you have to focus on and that probably is one of the best pieces of advice I had because there was no point in me worrying that other people were faster than me because I couldn't change what they were doing all I could change was what I was doing and I read quite a lot of um psychology and sports psychology books which help so like the chimp paradox and mind gym and those kind of things and there's a lot of really interesting books out there and you read them and you pick up tidbits as you go through it that you then end up applying to what you do yourself yeah, what was the mm. most one of the most useful things that you felt like you could apply when you were doing your own racing? Um, yeah, I think that whole think about your own race. So, mm. you know, you have to be in your own bubble when you're racing. And it is a bit different when you're in a relay, obviously, because you will see other people in the forest. But on an individual, you know, if it, if all goes to plan, then you shouldn't really see many people at all. Um, and if you are seeing them then it, it might well mean that they're, they've messed up or something, in which case, well, you don't really want to trust what they're doing anyway. Um, yeah, so from, from the psychology side, definitely to 
to be and and it's very easy to say think about your own race and forget about the rest it's very difficult to do that in practice and it took me many many years to actually be able to put that in practice and I'd say through my whole senior career that was probably without knowing it all the time that was actually what what I was working on developing Mm. so were you like trying to in a race or in training making sure you are only thinking about your own race or did you did you set up any like distraction kind of exercises to try and practice that um we did do so because I ran with um EF Qualidinger for quite a few years and um we did used to do kind of distraction training for relay training with them but it wasn't really distractions for me that was the problem it was the belief in myself mm-hmm. um so it was about going out and knowing that I had to just do my best and that I wasn't trying to push extra because it was a big race or a world championships because if you try and push extra it goes wrong so it was about training me to have the belief in myself and by enjoying the areas and the races and by doing those extra things like the training camps and putting in the time doing things and it enabled me to have the belief in myself that kind of what I could do was good enough yeah makes sense Mm. absolutely no well if no one else is learning stuff from this chat I am so so it's all good Um, so I've kind of ruined the flow there that was a really nice moment Um, so I guess uh as as we're as we're talking, I, I had a few um, kind of quick fire questions to to finish off with, but I won't dive into them just yet. But as we're talking, like the entire British season almost is uh, is kind of cancelled along with the uh, international season, and, and the main um, the main kind of focal point I think for most elite UK orienteers is is the JK. And, and Rachel, you've you've won the JK um, over your career, and uh, and it's obviously changed very much since. I guess, you started orienteering there was no sprint orienteering it's four four person relays no middle distance maybe and uh and now it's a you know, kind of full four day all out event over the weekend i guess um one one or two words maybe on on kind of what what the jk is or maybe what it means to you or any best memories of it over over time mm. wow yeah <laughs> i really like the jk it's um because my family oriented, when I was a kid, we always used to go away and we would stay somewhere with my family and we would do the JK. Um, and I remember as a junior, which was before there was a middle distance, um, myself and Hannah Wootton were always really strong rivals, but quite often I would win the JK and Hannah would win the British and that just seemed to be how it <laughs> fell out. Um, and I think in, in part that was because I had the kind of stability to do two good races over the two days. Um, I remember the year after coming back from the Netherlands which was 1993 which is gosh that was the first JK I remember it's possible I went to one before that but that's the first one I raced kind of properly um and Helen Bridal won each day by five minutes and I was second and I still I still remember that you know and that is a really long time ago now Um, I I was born on that good Friday that is that's that's how long ago it was (laughs) um it was down on like long valley or something like that one of those down south areas um and i just remember thinking like i'd had good runs and i remember thinking gosh she she must have been absolutely flying and she's one year older than me so the next year i didn't have to race her but I, interestingly i still have the jumper from 1994 and was wearing it around the house the other day um so that is a very <laughs> sustainable piece of clothing the amount of time it's lasted um nice yeah i remember the jk in 97 when it was on Penhale. um 
I really enjoy that as an area and it was just a really fun week because everybody was staying in the same place so you saw all your friends and when I was kind of still a junior going through school that was one of the best things about orienteering was a lot of my really good friends were orienteers and so you'd go away on um, northeast squad weekends and to interregionals and that kind of thing and you would just see all the people who you're really good friends and I think that's what I've always loved orienteering I, I'm sure I always will love orienteering but it was also being able to see people who were kind of like-minded that kept me going through a lot of those junior years so Penhale I remember um fond memories of that um what came next what do I remember after that I remember less of them as a young senior I was on um I was injured for a couple of years and so I missed them I had stress fractures in my femurs in 2000 and 2001 end of 2000 and end of 2001 in the femur in the femur yeah um it was when I was a university student and I probably I didn't have a very good running style at the time which is probably what happened but also I was in Cambridge and I'd done a lot more running on road than I was used to and Mm -hmm. um, I remember starting to get pain and I went to the sports injury clinic down at Addenbrooke's and I was really lucky that they sent me for a bone scan and accurately diagnosed it so I was on crutches for like six weeks and then hobbling around for a while after that and I used to crutch to the side of the swimming pool and then do a swimming session and then crutch back to the changing rooms again and yeah, crutch became a verb during that time because I spent so long on crutches. I had to be a verb for, like, walking around with crutches. So, um, yeah, and then the year after, I started to feel the pain again, and it hadn't got all the way to a stress fracture, but it was what they called bone stress, and so um, I was on crutches but for less time. Um, and the year after, when I was living in Sweden, I felt it coming back, and after that, I was like, this is it, and I completely changed my running style, and I completely retrained myself how to run, which is quite a challenge. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, but I did loads and loads of like drills and um, really thinking about how I was landing and which bit of my foot I was landing on. And um, I watched a lot of the pose method of running, which is just a style where they teach you to kind of land under the ball of your foot. So on the forefoot, it's a lot of the things that we learn in drills these days. And that's one of the things I kind of wish I'd had as a, a junior and as a university student was the drills and things that that I used to coach you with, Will, because um, yeah. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have had those injuries the same way if drills had existed when I was kind of going through that because I would hopefully have mm. learnt to run with a with a better style at the time. Um, and how long did that take to, to retrain yourself? I'd say a year, probably, um, to kind of get back week to Week in, decent, week out. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot less time of kind of concentrated retraining and drills and really thinking about it but um yeah I think it probably helped actually when I had kids because you kind of have to retrain yourself how to run after you have kids as well but um yeah and then I have a lot of other memories of JK's and more recently I've been to JK's with my kids and they've like they absolutely loved last year yeah last year running around doing like the string courses and things and it's so nice to see them at the JK enjoying it as well in the same way that I used to and kind of seeing how the juniors are doing and things it's all really um yeah I think the JK is a great event I was actually really excited for it being in the northeast again this year because I'm obviously from the northeast originally and I'm I feel so sorry for the organizers and planners and everyone who've put so much time and effort into it and now it's it obviously can't go ahead Um, Mm. it's such a shame that it's taken out your control like that yeah, massively disappointing because I, I can't remember the last time it was in the northeast. It must have been about ten years ago, maybe. Was it the Newcastle University 
sprint. Yeah, I don't remember what year it was, but I remember going into it thinking, this is going to be brilliant. And I remember everyone else just being like, oh, God, that middle distance is all <laughs> green. And I won it, the middle distance. I can't remember what happened for the rest of the weekend, but I remember winning the middle distance because I just went into it going, yes, this is like green rubbish and I'm really good at this because I was brought up in it. <laughs> nice. I, w- I was thinking that for this this year's middle, to be fair. Looking at that, I was going... This is going to be this is going to be grotty. I'm going to come back and have to explain the scratches on my arms for about two weeks at work, probably. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just have to embrace the grot and go with it. <laughs> yeah, I, well, that's something that um, I think Johan Runison said on either our interview or or uh, on a chat with me on our, our camp in February. It was, um, oh, Will, why are you being scared of the bush? Like, well, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna hurt if I go through it, Johan. It's only a training session. It's like, no, but Will, if you want to win and you want to be a world champion. You've got to go through the bush. The bush doesn't it. matter. You've got to go through it. Yeah. It's only green, you go. I mean, I've so. always been a straight is great girl. You know, it takes quite a lot of grot to make me take a round route that's not straight um, because that's always played to my strengths. And so taking a long round route would never be my strength. So through the grot and straight is great. That's, that's the way to go. <laughs> so there you go. You heard, heard it here first. Anyone who was thinking about, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe we'll get to run the races at, you know, later in the year as just normal events and everyone's going to turn up and now just smash it straight for everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't blame me if it's not the best route choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to wrap up with a little quick, um, a, a quick far round of, uh, of some things. And some of this actually might have already covered, but we'll, uh, We'll go for it anyway. Um, who was your favourite, um, favourite orienteer through for kind of throughout your career that you've you've seen or, or maybe looked up to, and then favourite rival? You know, the person who you had to immediately go and check the results to check you're beaten. <laughs> oh, that's tricky. Um, so as a junior, my rival was Hannah Wooten. Um, the whole way through junior, that was the person to check. As a senior, I don't think there was one particularly. Um, there's not one that stands out. There was a group of us and it was just a case of how you did against the whole group. So, um, and then my favorite orienteer, gosh, um, I think as a, as a kind of junior and young senior, I really looked up to Heather Munro. Um, and I remember mm-hmm. running a, I ran a world cup race in Portugal in the, my last year as a junior, um, missed my first weekend at university to go and do it actually, <laughs> I think. Um, and, it was really fun and I remember seeing um, Jen, now Jenny Peel and Yvette Baker and Heather getting a medal. It was a delayed one from the European champs that year and there was a lot of really great performances and the guys got a medal in the relay. Um, and it was re- like all of that kind of generation of orienteers just ahead of me. And when I lived in Sweden, I was um, job sharing with Jamie Stevenson and he was always a big inspiration to see the training and the preparation he put into everything that, that he did. Um, and he won his gold medal just at the end of the year when I'd been been living in Sweden. So I'd kind of seen his whole training for the year up to that. So, yeah, I guess those guys are the ones who I, from the British side, the ones who I looked up to the most. Nice. And um, worst orienteering memory? Oh, um, and, and you're allowed best as well. Yeah, so the, this... The worst ones, are, yeah, it's kind of tricky. They all re- revolve around injuries, I think. So in the World Cup final in Italy in 2005, I ran really well in the middle distance qualifier. It was when there were still qualifiers, and I think I was second in my heat. 
Um, and I remember actually Heather Munro saying to me afterwards, because I think she might have been third in her heat. And I think everybody was a bit amazed that I'd done so well and that I'd been second in my heat. But I just absolutely loved it. It was quite tricky. It was really interesting. It was different terrain. It was brilliant. Um, and then the next day was the sprint. And it was the sprint where Craney and Helen Winskill ended up winning medals. But on the way to number one, I'd made a small mistake and I was stood looking up the map and I fell off a cliff like actually <laughs> off a cliff and split my knee open at the bottom. Oh my gosh. And wow. I was, it hurt so much. I can't even explain the amount of pain that was going through me. Um, and I, but then I kind of hobbled to number one, hobbled to number two and the adrenaline started taking over and then I started running again and because it had started in the woods and then it finished in the old town and it was really intricate in the old town. And then um, this was the, the qualifier actually as well. Um, and I finished and I actually qualified and then I remember Sarah Rollins looking at my knee and just being like Rachel the fat is popping out of your knee uh, and she had to <laughs> she had to stitch me back together in the hotel room that evening um, it's like sitting on the bed and so it was brilliant oh, that man. she could do it um, but oh, it was just grim and like literally the next day I woke up and I could not walk at all I have absolutely no idea how I managed to finish that qualifier race and clearly never ran the final because I couldn't walk that day. Um, mm. And then it, and it was so frustrating in, in many ways because I'd run so well in the middle qualifier and then the re I'd actually qualified the sprint and then to see my good friends and people who I knew I could perform to a similar standard as winning medals, I was just like, oh, and here's me like not being able to walk. And then I skipped the long distance as far as I remember. And I did actually run the middle final um, and I was like 14th, which was really good. I can't remember if that came before or after the injury, to be honest. And I remember running the relay as well. But oh, it was just so painful. And it was one of those really frustrating memories where you're like, this could have been amazing. And I fell off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally fell off a cliff. Literally, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, best memory, world students in 2006 for the relay the day we won the relay and then had the kind of banquet where we all dressed up and the team spirit and the camaraderie with that, that's, I think that's probably the best memory. That and the training in France. Nice. And then I guess uh, this might link into France as well. Uh, Favourite orienteering area? Oh, yeah, those French World Championships areas. Yeah. They were absolutely incredible. Like Le Rivard and all the ones around there, they were just, there was like Le Quad something or other and Le Rivard. They were absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, if there's ever a summer event there, I'm going back. <laughs> I think there was talk of it, maybe. I don't know if OO Cup were going to go there. Yeah, I've, I've actually, I've actually have a lot of good memories of the OO Cup as well. I've ran that quite a lot of times in Slovenia. I really, really like Slovenia as a country. Um, great areas, chilled out organisation, really good ice cream. Um, <laughs> yeah, the OO Cup is amazing, and we were due to go to the OO Cup in France this summer, actually. But whether it happens or not, we'll have to wait and see. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully. And, and, and good plug for the Slovakian tourist board there as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the minute, uh, because, like, obviously, I'm not, I don't really have any goals in orienteering anymore other than orienteering on really fun and cool areas. So for me, I kind of, we look at it and we're like, well, what do we want to do? And we still do a lot of orienteering holidays, but it's because we really love it. And But we're going to the places where we think it's going to be fun events and chilled out organisation and when there's stuff for the kids to do as well. And, that's kind of my orienteering choices at the moment. Mm. Well, hopefully, yeah, there'll be some some chances later in the year for you to be able to uh, to tick those off, and uh, and hopefully we'll all be able to race and uh, do some cool stuff in the UK as well. But um, 
I guess we'll we'll uh, we'll leave it on that nice positive note. And uh, Rachel, thanks very much for for jumping on with us and, and sparing the time. And uh, yeah, best of uh, you know best wishes to Alex and um, stay safe. We will, and you. So that was Rachel Rothman there talking all things her career, JK, uh, and a bit of her training philosophy as well. And personally, one of my um, favourite interviews that we've done. I've got a bit of a buzz now to mm-hmm. to go out and do some training in lockdown and and get back on the hard interval. Seeing as I'm a, uh, well, I'm meant to be on a rest week and I've only had two days off. So uh, back on it tomorrow. <laughs> thanks, Rach. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously, thanks for coming on. Whilst um, Alex is is working away in. Um, Sheffield Hampshire Hospital um, fighting the fight against COVID as well so best wishes to him and anyone else out there you know in the NHS and on the front line and and um, doing their bit to uh, keep the virus at bay um, but moving on to uh, to other stuff we are now going to dive in with uh, Ralph's orienteering conundrum so for everyone who's been debating hard over the last couple of weeks about just what the answer was to Ralph's last question um, here he is with his answer Hi everyone, I hope you had lots of fun searching for random Scottish areas over the last two weeks. There were many good suggestions, but the answer I was looking for was Johnny Crickmore of Alvey. So Johnny Crickmore squad athlete and Moore of Alvey, a small area near the A9, popular for, with Laganlea and Badagrish camps. Did you get it, Will? I actually did, but the I think I had a little bit of help because I think I had actually seen it on Twitter beforehand. Ah, <laughs> uh, I I hadn't seen it on Twitter, and I and initially I was thinking like Graham Gristwood something something, and then I remembered because I have coached on Lagan Lear a few times. I've re- remembered um, that more of Alvey was a place, and I'm like, oh oh, hang on, Johnny Crickmore. So quite pleased with myself that I got it because yeah. I was yeah. So I, I, um, I think, ah, I didn't see it on Twitter. See, it was Peter Hodkinson sent me a message saying, I'm not on Twitter because I'm under 40. So uh, <laughs> here's the correct answer. So, <laughs> he, um, so he, he did get it correct. Um, I think wow. we had people guessing Catherine Barwood, or we had one from Basok saying Sasa Cheplin Shirak, which was a nice oh, melding of, of names like together. That. Um, Bridge of Allen Cherry from Matt Elkington as well. So who Not also no put area it... though, is it? Well, I mean, it's just a wow. place. Wow. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm... <laughs> he, he also snuck in a, a slight abuse for me in this tweet. So I think, but maybe <laughs> bonus points for Matt, as he also tried to claim that he was British champion the other week because uh, instead of Ralph Street, because he was the top orienteer in the only British champs long distance fell race that's occurred so far this year. So. A niche wrong sport, claim mate. from Matt, wrong but sport. wrong sport. So, sorry, Matt, <laughs> you're not. Um, but no, well done to anyone out there who, who did get it. I'm going to try and avoid the answer this week so that I can actually have, it, have a go at it. Um, so, Pete, if you do get the answer, can you text me it maybe a week after it's been out? <laughs> OK, let's, let's listen to, to Ralph's next one then. So there have been 18 JKs since the last one was cancelled in 2001. That's 18 long distance days or classic to market it a little bit better. The estimated winning times for the men is 90 to 100 minutes and for the women it's 70 to 80 minutes. How many times has the winning time been under, inside or over the recommended or estimated winning time in those 18 JKs? So 32 races 
how many are under, in or over the recommended winning times. 90 to 100 for the men and 70 to 80 for the women. Goodness me, that's a hard question. Oh, how much research are people allowed? Well, I think that's <laughs> I can't cheating. do that off the top of my head. <laughs> I th- well, no, I think you've just got to, like, best guess, I think. Yeah, closest, definitely. Closest guess. I mean, I'm always moaning that I think all the winning times are too short. So that'll be interesting to see if that's a reflection of my what I think or whether or whether I've just made it up. So because I always I always think they um, they very rarely go lo- like longer than the expected winning time, and if not, then more often they go actually on the, on the shorter side of that window or or even shorter still. Because I think planners don't uh, they underestimate how quickly the elites run. Yeah, but well, uh, coming, coming from someone who's competed in a couple of JK Classics now, it, it definitely feels like a long way when you're out there after, <laughs> th- after two days of racing. I know it might be different for the, uh, the people who jack it in and uh, save it for the relay, not, not naming any names over the last few years. That seems to become a bit of a trait for, for certain people out there. So maybe that could be Ralph's next question, actually. How many people have won the relay at the JK after skipping the long distance or or actually completing the long distance the day before that'd be an interesting mm. stat that would that would but but we're going to focus on those those times and yes. that's that's my my guess is they 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 err towards the, sh- the short side but we will wait and see yeah i think it probably will err, err on the uh, on the short side to be honest i i think it might be shorter for the women though than the men i think there'll be more short women's courses than there will be short male courses i think okay. there'll be some ingrained sexism in there Okay, we'll see. We'll see. I'm sure Ralph's going to pl- supply us with the full breakdown of statistics for for the next episode when he get, when he he reveals the answer. Absolutely, um, but we have actually had some racing over the JK weekend, and yes. not in the traditional sense. But we've had <laughs> the uh, first Easter. Look, well, there's been a couple of things going on. So uh, actually, the first one I'll give a, a little shout out to is the. Australian Easter Carnival, where they set um, virtual racing challenges over the weekend. So you had a bleep test on the Friday, a monofartlek on the Saturday, a Strava art challenge on the Sunday, and then a hill climb on the Monday, um, where you mm. had to do as much climb as you could in a 40-minute period. So some good bits of Strava art coming out there if you if you go and look at some people's training logs from, uh, from down under. Um, but you also had the Easter Lockdown Orienteering Championships. So they're organised by Chris Mivard and partially supporting the uh, squad support fund with some of the race entry fees and a challenge over the four days of the JK trying to mimic the JK weekend. So various mental and uh, and technical challenges as well as catching feature racing. Um, now, I've not done too much catching features racing in my time. I've played a little bit on the demo version, but I don't have the full version. But Catherine, you did actually try some of the uh, some of the catching features over the weekend for the first time. How did yeah. you find it? Well, I thought I'd better really because I was doing these um, like kind of live stream roundups at the end of every day, and then commentating actually on the grand final on um, Monday. They're still on Twitch if you wanted to go have a look. And yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I, there was the um, the long distances on Kilnsey from the JK, I think 2016, where. Yep the weather was hell basically it was awful it It was was awful awful. so basically what they decided is is they'll give everyone the chance to run that again in um you know from the comfort of their sofa i i really enjoyed it you could just point your compass in a direction and then just kind of run and it was it was brilliant and just like find some sort of like 
re-entrant or pit or something that your control was in. And uh, you didn't and have like, to hide in them this time either, like some of us did out on the course. No, exactly, because, you, yeah, it wasn't like freezing, bucketing it down, hypothermia kind of weather. Um, mm. uh, and I also did the the sprint which was from Swansea uh, that JK which Chris Jones actually planned it and then he raced it um, on catching features and he didn't realise that that was the course that he'd planned Um, (laughs) that was really hard I got so lost on that one it took me ages to relocate because everything was so so close together so oh that was so hard but really good fun still yeah and I think I I never realised actually you could import actual maps into the mm. program with the with the mm. real version. So I think a massive shout out to to Craig Nolan who yeah. spent a lot of the weekend and before it you know building these maps up for people to race on so they could have something to do over the weekend. I think you mentioned on the live stream of the grand final that uh, one of them took him like two or three days to yeah. to map and build within the program. So. You know, big big shout out to Craig because that's a huge shift to to do so that people could just spend a bit of time, you know, whiling away an afternoon racing on it. So yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> I mean, impressive stuff. And like you said, you were commentating on the live stream of of some of the races, and the grand final was mass starts for the I think it was twelfth to seventh place, and then sixth to first, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, n- not without drama. And we had to, some people tried to like join the server who weren't meant to be. And it was first across the line was to take the win. And um, in fact, in the final, six, the six six athletes in the final, six different nationalities. And in the end, it was the, the Swede um, Kasper Skep who won. So yeah, very, you know, international, amazingly competition. Thierry Georgiou was even there. Mm. And he didn't win as he well. He didn't win. So, no, he good. was eighth. <laughs> I think it was a good, like, all-round orienteering kind of worldwide community feel to it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was good fun, and there's going to be another one on in just over a week's time. So hopefully entries will still be open for that by the time this podcast goes out. I know the first one was very popular, so if you if you missed out on the first one, then um, Chris Smithard's uh, organising one for. Uh, the weekend after next and mm. believe it so there's only two weeks between between the two events believe it or not he will have more time to spend on the second one than he did on the first one because of how crazy last minute it was <laughs> just a, a last minute idea and a lot more entries than he thought he was going to get yeah those are over 500 in the yeah. end yeah. yeah yeah wow it's just and in that short space of time the fact he had to close it to and, and more people were wanting entries and couldn't get them it's just goes to show you i think the uh the love that the orienteering community has for their sport and their People want to compete and to help dismo. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're absolutely just kind of crying out for it and uh I saw other stuff over the weekend of people doing Easter egg hunts with maps that they've made of their mm-hmm. house and and things like that, so really good kind of vibes coming out from the orienteering community i think over the uh over the weekend and other other streams of entertainment starting up again, so like quarantine punters I saw they put out a uh a a Instagram post. It's a very funny Instagram. If you want to go and have a little follow of that, that's uh, that provides some good value that you can uh, give yourself a little laugh at some people's training logs from back in the day. So, um, well, I think we should um, end this episode there. We'll be back in another couple of weeks with another interview and some more roundup of what everybody's been getting up to whilst we're in lockdown. We'll be back then. <laughs> <laughs>